0: I'm John Fort, anchor and technology reporter for CNBC Business News. You're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast.
1: I would sit in a meeting with people who were, you know, lower down the chain and they would look to me to make the decision. I'd say, no, that's actually your area of responsibility. I want you to make the decision. And the reason why that was important was because when they hit a bump, they can't say, oh, well, that was Paul said to do that. You know, I give up. It's been about 10 years since the debut of the
0: modern smartphone when Apple's iPhone first went on sale. One of the companies that has most defined this decade? Qualcomm. Leading the charge at Qualcomm for most of that time has been executive chairman Paul Jacobs. His father Irwin co-founded the company and Paul helped build it into a power broker in mobile computing. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers. We're gonna learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. Tell a friend. Qualcomm designs the chips that serve as the brains for most premium Android phones and its patented technology is in pretty much every smartphone on the market. That has earned the company a stock market value that's now over $160 billion. I sat down with Paul Jacobs at CNBC headquarters for a conversation about some of his defining moments and what's next. First, I mentioned it had been a while since he and I last had a nice long chat.
1: It has been a while. I think uh, we were out at Qualcomm together maybe the last time. So. We were. It's good to see you. You Sitting gave up of that of CEO wall.
0: title, and I don't see you quite as much, but it's great to have you here. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, that wasn't that phone making the noise, was
1: that it? That was a different phone. Yeah, I mean... I'll turn that one off. All, all right, turn that
0: one that off. off. Um... But you got kind of old and new here. I do. So, why don't we new. just why don't we just dive right in with that? Since right. one of them is beeping, the other one is silent for now, but yeah. used to make noise. It's the back 10-year the anniversary day. of the modern smartphone. Uh-huh. Show us what you got.
1: So, this thing got uh, launched in 1998 and it was based on the Palm Pilot operating system. So, I had actually been using a Newton back in the day. If you remember that thing? Yeah. And I had gone to Apple to try and uh, get them to do a, uh, a smartphone with that, and uh, they didn't want to. So I went over and saw Donna Dubinsky and Jeff Hawkins at uh, Palm, and uh, this is what came out of it. So February of '97, we kind of got together, and, it, and uh, that was the first time. And we launched the thing September of '98, and that uh, had. CDMA inside it, so it had real data services in it, had the internet protocols inside it, had a web browser in it, all sorts of cool stuff. You used to be able to actually (laughs) dial pressing a button and pull up a web page even so it's kind of like speed dialing for the internet
0: i know that was crazy new technology <laughs> back then there's a lot that's happened obviously in the 20 years since you walked into Donna dubinsky's office in what was that mountain view yeah. at the time i don't remember where palm was at the tyhan spring used to be in mountain view um 10 years after that apple actually started selling the iphone the uh, predecessor to this guy here. And along the way, uh, I guess it was in around 2005 or so, uh, you guys started work on what became Snapdragon, Mm -hmm. which powers uh, a huge number of the Android smartphones in the marketplace, certainly at the high end.
1: Like this one.
0: Like that one. Before we get to that though,
1: uh,
0: I know executives don't like talking about lawsuits, but I got to ask some (laughs) questions uh, anyway around Kind of what's at stake in all of these legal actions right now apple wants to pay less for uh, some of the technology that they're getting from you guys they've clearly become a very profitable company Mm -hmm. uh, on the back of of the iphone and some of the technology that you guys have worked on as well from your historical perspective what's this really about
1: well i mean we put a lot of effort into developing all the underlying technologies that went into making that phone that you just showed work and, uh, you know, wireless internet and app store and GPS and all those kinds of things that we did along, you know, starting in the times when we were doing this stuff, but even back in the early 90s when we first put the internet protocols in the phone. And we've just kept that pace going. That's why the phones have gotten better and better and better. So we continue to invest in that R&D, but we also work with the whole industry by using standards bodies. and putting out, coming together as an industry to say, okay, we're all going to agree on these things. So when you take that phone from one place to another, it still works. Mm. And so the industry's gone back and forth. And we've had these battles, even when I took over in, in 05 as CEO, we had a battle back then. It was Nokia and Ericsson and Broadcom and TI, Panasonic, NEC. I mean, it was it was also a big, big battle. It's a similar sort of thing. People want to get around, um, you know, they, they see intellectual property as a cost in their bill of materials, and they just want to pay less. And uh, But for us, we want to continue to drive technology forward, and importantly, we want to spread it across a very broad ecosystem as well. Mm. So
0: lots of people getting into, uh, in the technology world, getting into other company spaces. Um, there's Amazon wants to buy Whole Foods now, which I would argue is driven by this whole smartphone revolution and how Amazon has embraced it. You guys are continuing to try to get into PCs as well. Didn't work. I think that's what we were talking about last time I was sitting down with you or one of the last times. um, It didn't work out as well that time around Windows 8. Why is it going to work now?
1: Oh Well, this time it's full Windows. There it was a thing called Windows RT, which Mm -hmm. was a little bit of a restricted version of Windows. And uh, this one's actually the full Windows. All your apps are going to work on it. And look, we've moved farther down the generations too. So it's more power efficient. The processor is better. It's a, you know, better connection. You know, we're shipping gigabit LTE now so you're going to have a better connection to that device than you have to the thing sitting on your desk hooked up to your cable modem. So I mean it's pretty amazing the stuff that's happened, and, and I think you know that just full compatibility I think that's going to be a big issue and, and we didn't have that in the past.
0: And you expect to legally be okay uh, in that realm because you know there, there's this whole ecosystem of companies that uh, built up intellectual property around the PC I imagine another entrant; they might not be happy with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we'll see how all these things play out. I mean, we definitely feel confident about our positions, but uh, we'll see what happens. And, and there's, you know, there are different companies taking different positions at different times around intellectual property, so mm-hmm. it's a little tough to get away with inconsistency as
0: well. <laughs> that, that doesn't stop anybody from trying. That's so true, Amazon, definitely. Whole Foods. Yeah. Were you surprised?
1: Uh, you know, you'd already seen Amazon sort of moving towards more mortar, yeah. you know, and I, it's actually funny because I was talking to my uh, guy who used to run marketing with me a long time ago, and we had been sitting in one of these conferences when they were, back then when they were debating clicks and mortar, bricks and mortar, and this kind of things. and we're like, oh, we think clicks and mortar, that's going to happen, and now... It took a little while, but now I think that is what it's going to be. And, and I think that's kind of the the way that they're moving. They're saying, hey, we can take all of this convenience that you have out of, uh, you know, online ordering or on-device ordering, and now we're going to make it so that you can go in and see things, you can pick it up. I, you know, I mean, we don't know the full strategy, but one can guess the the kinds of things that they'll do with that. So I think it's exciting. I think, you know, it'll push... More disruption or push more innovation that's you know that's always good for consumers. Companies like Qualcomm have to make some technological bets well in
0: advance. You had to make some bets around what became Snapdragon before the iPhone was out and Android as we know it today had become popularized. Right now, you guys are just putting out new technology platforms around smart speakers, around augmented reality, and virtual reality. When we look at Things like Amazon, Whole Foods, and who knows how that's going to turn out. What kinds of bets does a Qualcomm make in a world where you imagine e-commerce retailers owning grocery stores?
1: Well, I mean, we made a lot of those bets early on because we put the GPS capabilities in the phone. We put all these different kinds of technologies for you to interact in the local area, in the phone. I think that's going to be a very interesting thing in the context of... an actual store like how electronic is that store are all the tags electronic or do you go in and use VR to look at things you know Mm -hmm. they could do any number of interesting things to to sort of spice up your experience of going in a store because it's it's not really that that modern, right? I mean, you kind of shop in a grocery store pretty much the way you used to shop in a grocery store way back when. And so I think, you know, we'll see, we'll see changes from that. The well, difference
0: comes at the register, largely, now, where you can wave your phone, whether it's a Samsung phone or an iPhone, Samsung Pay, Apple Pay. Yeah. You know, particularly at Whole Foods, that's a way uh, that you can pay. Do you expect payment technologies to drive a lot of these changes? Are you guys investing there?
1: We're, so there's a lot of, technology in nxp for example yeah. around these kinds of things so yeah for cards and the chip cards and all these things we do that for all the near-field communications we do those kinds of technologies as well um, the question is really going to be how the consumer adopts and the consumers have adopted relatively slowly on all these sort of payment technologies and people have been at it for a long time i just think it's one of those technology adoption things it'll go slowly and then all of a sudden it'll take off and people will call it an overnight success that really took 10 15 years to happen
0: now paul i always find people like you fascinating because you're kind of second generation with this company. Your dad, Erwin Jacobs, was one of the founders of Qualcomm. But a lot of times I think when people hear, oh, you know, his dad was a founder of Qualcomm, they picture you as like a toddler under the desk of the But you were like 23 years old when yeah. Qualcomm was founded, right? Yeah, I Something was like I was
1: already in yeah, I was already in college and so yeah, I I was actually in grad school even at yeah. that point at UC Berkeley. So I was already a practicing electrical engineer and I had also worked in all of his you know, previous company and every summer I had done engineering, too. So I was actually a pretty experienced engineer by the time he started Qualcomm.
0: What was it like growing up with sort of this entrepreneurial professor and that influence on you? Because you've got siblings. I think you're the one engineer right. of your siblings, right? right? Uh, you're also the oldest?
1: No, I'm the third. Third? Third of so four. So
0: you're the youngest? No. Okay, so four. you're one of the youngest. Yeah. So why do you think it was you that ended up uh, becoming the engineer? Was there a connection with your dad or what he did that was different?
1: I think I was just, I was just attracted to it and I, I don't know, I was good at science and math and stuff like that. And when my dad brought home the first teletype uh, thing for us to talk to the computer that was at work, I kind of gravitated towards it and you know I started programming and using there wasn't the internet back then but it kind of felt in a similar way because I was talking to a computer that was distant from me Um, so I used to do that a lot when I was a little kid so I had a different experience than most kids back then did. Now kids today they all just expect that experience. But back then, it was a very different kind of thing. Not very many people even knew about email or anything like that. And we used to play computer games, but that was text-based things on <laughs> thermal paper. So we'd go through rolls and rolls of thermal paper. and but it, You, you know, have died. Was, yeah, you know. exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, so, you know, I, I just got that chance. And I think that's why when I came back to Qualcomm after finishing grad school and doing a, a, a postdoc, you know, I, I was kind of ready for the whole notion of the wireless internet because I had sort of lived in that space my whole life. And when we then built a system that really was data capable, then I started to think about, it, you know, if I could take that experience with me, carry it around with me, I really got excited about that. And That sort of formed the basis of how my career went. Now you initially started at Qualcomm in what, 1990? Uh, let's see. So they started in 85, so I was the summer of 86. 86 and then okay. I went back full-time in 90.
0: Okay. After spending some time in
1: France. Yeah, I did a year postdoc in France working on... Uh, actually, funny enough, my, my Ph.D. thesis was on path planning for robots that drove like cars. So I was one of the first people to do that kind of <laughs> path planning. I went to, to France to work at a lab and they were going to build a robot that was going to be launched to Mars, and it was going to be a big robot that drove like a car and carried little robots like the Pathfinder robots around in its stomach and let them out every so often. That's why those robots couldn't really go very far. Huh. So it was very fun. I had, you know, I used a bunch of the technology those guys had developed in France, and then I added my piece to it that actually caused it so that it could drive like a car.
0: Is, is that? sobering in that we're still talking about the kinds of technologies that people were working on 25 to 30 years ago? Or is there something else about the pace of change that's happened that you know things actually happen more quickly than you think? You
1: no, know, I think some things happen much more slowly than you expect. And then they take off, they sort of hit the critical mass, and then they go very fast. But it is that exponential thing where things feel slow, 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 slow. whoop, Something happened very quickly and and I think that's true of a lot of technologies And so the fact that we're now really into autonomous vehicles and driving cars I mean when I did it was very early days and it was really I would say fairly rudimentary stuff Not like what's happening right now Um, and you know But when will that actually really roll out? I mean we don't even know that either because it's going to be this interaction between how humans relate to an autonomous vehicle, how the regulatory system works. All these things are gonna come together. So that, I think, we're still waiting. We're starting to see kind of tipping up of that knee of the curve, but is it gonna take off really fast, or are there gonna be things that set it back? Are there gonna be regulatory issues? Are there gonna be pushback? You know, we gotta play through all those things, and that's fairly typical in the tech industry. Now,
0: 1990, uh, the internet wasn't, the consumer internet wasn't even a thing. Uh, Cell phones, were barely a thing at all. I mean, that's still pretty close to Wall Street days. Yeah, Gordon Gecko on the yeah. beach with the. Big I mean, old. that thing was freaking. This thing, Star looks, Trek small back then. This yeah. thing
1: looks small. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, compared to you know the the luggables that people were holding to their yeah. heads back then. So, how did Qualcomm evolve from what it was in the '80s and '90s yeah. into? this cell phone and eventually smartphone player because, I mean, Nokia, Ericsson, uh, Motorola were ruling the roost then.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, those guys didn't believe enough in data, and we did, and we built a system that could carry data well, and there were people at the company who had been involved in ARPANET and all these packet switching networks before the, the internet came about, and so we had the technical capability, and then My group, I was doing the speech compression algorithm when I came back, and so all these people in the company were building like bigger and bigger pipes to put the data over, and my group was really the one group in the company that was building the applications, Hmm. you know, the voice was the application. Nobody thought of it that way because they were used to a traditional telephone network, but we were really doing voice that way. And so then we said-
0: Why were you guys thinking like that when everybody else was thinking differently?
1: Because they, we went digital. I mean, we went to this very high capacity digital network and we realized, okay, we can get a lot of calls on it, but we can also put internet. And like I said, people had been working on the internet and email, and we had Eudora email and all this. So we we were into that stuff really, really early on.
0: Do you think you were mostly into it because you guys were happened to be inventing in that arena? So you kind of were eating your own dog food? Or was there something else about the, the people who you got on board and and the focus that you had on, I don't know, a certain set of technologies where you could just see – around the corner a little better than the others? I think,
1: in my case, it was because I was building the speech coder for the system and I knew the system as a data pipe. And so to me, I thought about it that way. And so then when it came to put GPS on the phone, when it came to put the software downloading stuff onto the phone, you know, all these different things that we later put onto the phone. They were sort of just natural things. And I re- actually, what was kind of cool was I was at a, a conference one, and I was showing this off. And a guy came up to me, and this thing doesn't even have grayscale. I mean, this is like <laughs> a real, it's dot matrix screen, but that's about it.
0: And you write and on the guy, bottom with graffiti. Yeah, That's what I, they called the exactly. kind of not-quite-real alphabet that you had to write in. Exactly. I
1: was, I was pretty fast in graffiti. I, I was and good at it, too. Yeah. Anyway, so this guy comes up, and he shows me video running on this thing. Video And it was kind of crufty and you kind of squinted a little and it looked okay, but when that really hit and you're like, okay, that really is going to happen. Multimedia is going to happen. And I used to show charts with the phone in the center. It used to be a feature phone, not a smartphone. And all these different kinds of things that were going to get embedded into the phone, which is exactly what happened. All these other products just became a feature of the phone. And I think it was just seeing all these bits and just kind of taking the next logical step and saying, okay, well, if that's true and I can get a little bit more data, then what else could be true? And, and in fact, when we showed off the first demonstration of our real high-speed Internet technology, it was called HDR for high data rate at the time, Uh, we actually showed it off with video and I remember getting up and giving the speech there, same show that we introduced this, and I said, that's not TV, that is video streaming over the internet wirelessly to a wireless device. And it was like, I don't know, we just saw that earlier on. What is it now that
0: most companies maybe don't believe in that Qualcomm does or how do you keep from being in the other group going forward, where you think the old stuff that you dominated in is what's going to be the future? Meanwhile, there's some other company that's going to be the next Qualcomm that's going to end up eating your lunch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so my saying was always, if somebody's going to eat my lunch, I want it to be me. Right. Right. So, and and we did that. You know, when we went, when I took over the company, we were known for CDMA, a very certain version of CDMA. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things and it was I did CDMA was
0: CDMA versus GSM right, wireless, right?
1: Standards. And then they, then GSM was going to WCDMA, mm-hmm. but what we did when I first took over, we went and bought a company that did basically the the technology that underlies LTE, because we figured out that was the way the industry wanted to eat our lunch. And we said, hey, we're going to be ahead of this one, and we did. We ended up being very, you know, very well positioned in, in LTE. And similar things going on in. Um, in 5G, you know, people are going to millimeter wave, and they have all these ideas about, you know, how you're going to bounce signals around and all, all this stuff. And and I think we have some very good ideas there that that other people aren't thinking about, which I'm not going to tell you about right now. But, you're
0: not? Come on. Not that going I would understand good. it anyway.
1: <laughs> it's going to be good. You're going to have like very low latency, lots of bandwidth to your, to your devices, and you know, mission critical applications, super low power applications, all these things because what we see is now once we put all the R&D to put the functionality into this device now that functionality can cheaply go out into all those other devices that we embedded in it and make a purpose-built device more more capable. What
0: about all these crazy companies like Comcast who think they're going to build the equivalent of a wide area wireless network out of a bunch of wi-fi base stations of which they have many and then kind of fill in the gaps with MVNO agreements, agreements with uh, existing wireless carriers to sort of wholesale uh, their
1: networks. So I'm going to work? Well, a lot of the phones now will do Wi-Fi calling also. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that we've done is we've taken the cellular technologies and we put them in the unlicensed bands as well, and they interoperate well with Wi-Fi in those bands also, but they're much more capable. They can go farther distances, better data rates, you know, more reliability, all sorts of services that you can put over them. So I think that's what's going to be quite interesting. We're getting a lot of actual interest in that for what for industrial internet of things that people want to have a high reliability network they want to be able to control it in their in their space it's spectrum that's unlicensed so they don't have to go out and get a license for it and then they can know that when they're hooking up their industrial equipment or their medical equipment or whatever thing it is whatever their application is that's going to work and so i think yeah i mean wi-fi is already you know, carries a lot of data off of a smartphone, carries some voice off of a smartphone. I don't think that's necessarily the threat. The question is, can those companies, can they actually roll out a real nationwide network that's got the kind of ubiquity and reliability? Do they have the same set of retail storefronts to, you know, service the customers? Because that's always a big thing. And, you know, okay, so maybe there's going to be a new entrant into this into the space. But the But the cellular operators, the existing cellular operators already get that. I mean, if right. you look at, uh, some of the operators' networks they're mostly small cells already, so they've already made that that right. transition.
0: Tell me about the uh origin story for what's become Snapdragon. It yeah. seems like a bit of a leap that this kind of high minded wireless technology company yeah. ends up becoming uh forgive me the Intel of the smartphone era, right. Um, You get this architectural license to arms designs, you start building your own shit, like, was that, that must have been a crazy idea at the time when you guys first decided to do it. That's different from building a phone or, or making a watch or that, that's a, a huge potential mistake if it goes wrong. Well,
1: Not really, because you know we were working with ARM at the time, Uh so we do, you know, we have the instruction set. There's all the whole tool chain, all that stuff, is there because ARM's already started to build an ecosystem around that. And what we said was we wanted to build a processor that was really tailored towards low power and the kinds of functionality that we wanted in a phone. And we weren't necessarily seeing that ARM themselves was doing exactly that because they were really trying to service a lot of different markets. And we said, hey, this smartphone think that's going to be huge. We're going to go at that. We're going to put all of our effort behind it. And that's why we decided we wanted to build something that was purpose-built for us. And then we said, hey, we have all this other functionality. Let's let's put in connectivity. Let's put in multimedia. Let's put in, you know. What did you think
0: a a smartphone was at the time?
1: I always believed the smartphone was going to be the thing. Like I said, I used to show a picture of a feature phone with all these other devices coming into it. And then, you know, look, I believed it was a big screen. Right. And, you know, this had a you know it had a stylus on it but it had a touch screen on it <laughs> right you know so i believed in now i i was still like having of the your keys.
0: prototypical smartphone at the time like in your head at the time when you were thinking of the sort of chip that qualcomm wanted to make
1: well i'm I, like i said i had been using the newton so i was used to doing handwriting recognition and stuff like that already and i was taking my notes on that and things like that so yeah i i thought of the fact that that kind of a device being connected would be such a radically better experience. And then I had this you know, visceral experience one time, it's a story I've told a few times, but I took this to uh, Hawaii with me on vacation at the end of the year, and uh, I think it was the end of the year in 98. And uh, somebody had just turned on the, the data capabilities, and I was sitting on the beach in Maui, and we wanted to have sushi. And I just typed Maui sushi on the Alta Vista search. Well, I didn't type. I guess I wrote it in graffiti <laughs> on the Alta Vista search engine, if you remember that one. And it oh, yeah. told me the best place to go to have sushi. And I'm like, OK, that's, the world is different. I mean, I, I thought it, but I felt it so visually when that happened, because I realized the connected thing gave you access to everything around you in the world. Huh. And so then it was just, we just pushed so hard. And then, you know, when it came to buying a company called SnapTrack for the GPS capabilities in the phone, because we wanted to integrate that and have location services, now it started out just being able to find you when you made a 911 call, but we saw the idea of doing more than that. And Brew. And Brew, it was a whole, well, so the way Brew came about was when we had the feature phones. Well, th- Tell the audience what Brew is, okay, because we're,
0: we're about to, to go down a geek rabbit hole, right. and some people so, might be like, Brew, what?
1: Okay, so Brew was binary run... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Binary runtime environment for wireless. So that was a system which was basically the app store. It was, you could download apps off of a little store on your phone and install new stuff onto your phone and make your phone work better, just like we all do today. But we did that back in 2000, basically, and we had built the underpinnings for it even before that. So... This was a thing where, so I was running the handset business, and we wanted to put little apps on the phone. We, before we had decided to even run a whole download service, we just wanted to be able to put little games on there and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. the code, having been a startup and kind of growing up, the code was a little bit of spaghetti. It was a little hard to modify. So me and a couple of the engineers said, okay, let's put a layer in there so that it's easy to put stuff on top and hide all that complexity below that layer. And then we decided that we were going to sell the handset business to Kyocera. We said, no, let's keep that layer and now let's build a business model around it. And I actually sat on my whiteboard, and I still have the printout of my whiteboard where we did the whole business model for it, including... Certain percentage goes to the developers, a certain percentage goes to the operators, certain percentage goes to us. So, it, I mean, it was exactly this model that everybody knows of today, and we, we did that first. And the thing that we did differently was we allowed the the apps to actually touch deeply into the phone because what people were doing at the time was they were trying to sandbox the app. The app could only see a little bit of the phone because the app was too dangerous and it might you know, affect the phone. Right. So we took a different route. We actually had the developer Signed so with with cryptography they signed their application And if anybody made any changes to it It wouldn't run and so we would know if there was a problem We knew who caused that problem It was a developer hmm. and we could revoke apps and pull them off and so forth and that was that was the early days of, of getting Applications downloaded onto your phone.
0: That's before you were CEO.
1: That was before yeah I was into
0: but that's CEO thinking at what point did you know you wanted to be a CEO?
1: that's a good question I you know I actually got the I got the exposure to a lot of the CEOs in the industry because when I was doing the speech compression algorithm nobody could really understand how the radio worked this was like really high level digital communications theory but everybody could call somebody and hear how it sounded. So everybody came through my lab. Mm. So I was always giving the demonstrations to people. In time. And so I just got a lot of exposure that way and I think it was sort of a natural thing. I started to think, well I actually have a point of view here. I believe that data is going to be important. I believe the phone's going to be the most important thing in your life and you're going to have all of your life on it and I want to go make that happen. And so I really just started putting things in place to do that. And then I got the chance to run the handset business, and I got, you know, and so all these things kind of played out together. And then, you know, I think, of course, my father wanted me to be able to follow him, but it was a, you know, it was an independent uh, board and, you know, a committee of the board that that did the selection process. And, it, and you know, at the end, I said to them, I said, uh, you have any questions for us? I said, I'm a hard choice for you guys, right, because of nepotism. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but... I you know, give them credit. They were willing to do it. And they saw that I was the guy that was trying to make this change from just being the radio company to being more about the applications and more about more functionality into the device.
0: And it helps that your name, along with others by now, is on what, 82 patents?
1: Yeah, I have a, I have a few patents.
0: <laughs> I mean, 82 is kind of a lot. Uh, yeah. don't, don't be too bashful. So how are you a different CEO than your dad?
1: Well, my dad was a founder, so founders want to touch every single thing. I mean, they want all the decisions to come through them. And I, I always used to tell people the big difference between Irwin and me is that Irwin made every decision he wanted to make, and I didn't. You call him Irwin at work? Yeah, and I—I I mean, it just depends. You know, I'd say Dad or Irwin. It, yeah. <laughs> but um, but what I mean to say by that was that I'll, I would sit in a meeting with people who were you know lower down the chain, and they would look to me to make the decision i say no that's actually your area of responsibility i want you to make the decision and the reason why that was important was because when they hit a bump they can't say oh well that was paul said to do that I, you know i give up no no you made that decision you go figure out how to how to fix it and of course they're closer to it so they probably will come up with a with a good idea and when they need some help then they would come to me and so I think that was a very fundamental difference between the two of us. And um, I also think he was very focused on the radio and more capacity and a bigger pipe and all these really hard things to do in digital communications theory. And while he was obviously very into the Internet and all those things, I think I felt a little bit more towards the application side. What were we going to run on top of that platform? And so I think that, that was another, another thing that changed.
0: Was he always on board with the smartphone thing, with the vision?
1: I think, yeah, I think so. He, was, he always believed in it, too. He wasn't one of the people who was a naysayer. We, we had another founder who was definitely a naysayer and wrote an article right before 3G launch saying how oh you don't really need much data on your device because who, what are you going to do with it? You just want to make phone calls. So fortunately, that, that point of view did not rule the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is this Internet of Things concept overblown?
1: No. I mean, the question is, is it early? I think it's early. Is it overblown? No way. I mean, everything is going to be connected, including our bodies. But yeah, some things will take longer than others. I think the things that we're already starting to see with cars being connected, I mean, that's happened. We, almost every car has connectivity in it. And it's not necessarily because they're giving you entertainment services, because they want to be able to keep track of what's going on with that car. And so that's, that's happened. Um, you know, healthcare, which we started a long time ago, has been slower. I will admit, that has taken a little longer. We just did this Tricorder X Prize, $20 million into that, a $10 million prize. And the people got pretty close to building a thing like a Star Trek Tricorder that could diagnose diseases. But now we'll see how long does that actually take to get into the field. Hmm. And, you know, so I don't know. <laughs> Are you wearing a smartwatch? I, I was wearing our own smartwatch for a while, but that didn't pan out. So I'm not long, wearing so. one either. Yeah. Why
0: aren't we wearing smartwatches?
1: I just didn't wear a watch. I mean, I, I didn't get used to wearing a watch. But supposed
0: the these smart watches were supposed to make us want to wear a watch.
1: Yeah, I actually like it a lot. I, I think that um, if we had kept it going, I think we would have kept driving it forward, and, and it would have been a good thing, and I, and I think I would have worn it. But I don't know. I, you know I, I do like and I do miss it even now because I got very used to having the notification just being able to look like that to see what the texts were. So, so I'm not sure. It started getting on my nerves. Yeah, the, because it buzzed too much, and the notifications sort of got to, yeah.
0: The main thing that started getting on my nerves, though, was the inaccurate heart rate monitoring. Yeah. You know, I, I'd, I'd be wearing the Apple Watch, I'll just call them out, I'd be wearing the Apple Watch, the heart rate monitoring for ever, whatever reason would be off. It would be counting like every other beat, so I'd be going at 140 beats per minute, and it would show me 70. And that's just, that's worse than not wearing it at all. To exactly. Being told, oh, you're having a nice stroll. No, I'm working here. And so I just, I'll f- I feel better not wearing it.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think if you're going to promise a certain functionality to the consumer, you ought to deliver that functionality. And, and I agree with you. Heart rate was, was a thing. We actually didn't have it on our, the smartwatch that we did at first. And I do agree with you. I mean, it needs to be right. And, and the cool thing is when it gets right, we're going to actually be able to figure out more things because people look at heart rate variability and they can diagnose all sorts of conditions. And as we get more personalized medicine, I think the fact that you'll have real-time feedback, that will be better too. And you're going to have a sense of, I, I do believe sometime out in the future, I'm not predicting exactly when, I think people actually will be willing to put more hardware inside of them even hmm. to do monitoring. I mean, I have a buddy who has a pacemaker. I look at him, he's got a guardian angel looking over his shoulder because if something happens with his heart, it's going to restart his heart. So, And and those things work better when they're connected because when something starts to go wrong, the the pacemaker can tell the doctor, hey, call the patient and tell them to come in instead of the patient going, oh, it's not that bad. I you know, I'm not going to come. You know, so I think that actually may happen in the not-too-distant future, that you will have technology inside you and more people do But it's kind of the security
0: software problem, isn't it? It's one thing if you've got something inside of you because of risk of death, fear of death. Yes. It's another thing choosing to have something inside of you because somebody has promised you a better life. What does it take, you think, to kind of flip the switch on, on motivation from fear of death to desire for a better life?
1: Well, I think it's going to be all, you know, it's going to be the classic adopt, adoption cycle. So there will be people at the early part of the adoption cycle who say, hey, I want the quantified self and I want to know all of this information about myself. And of course, they'll be the earliest of, of early adopters. And then I think people with chronic conditions, they'll be interested in it too because if I can have continuous glucose monitoring and I'm a diabetic and then that allows me then to run my pump, and I mean, that for sure is a benefit. And then the question is, how frequently do I want to have my blood monitored for cancer or my blood monitored for biomarkers of an impending heart attack? or you know? I think there are, things, there are steps that you can see that would lead you to a path where people would say, okay, I think I'm gonna make the jump. But for sure, it has to work. And so it will mostly be proven out, I think, in cases where people absolutely need it first, and then the people who don't absolutely need it will say, okay, well, it works here, then maybe I'll take it.
0: Talk to me about America, the United States. You can look at it from the perspective of competitiveness, from uh, technological advancement, education, whatever. Is there anything that keeps you up at night where you think, hey, this is a particular area where policy wise, hey, the citizens of this country really need to focus
1: on it? Well, look, immigration is a big deal. This country was founded on the American dream and the melting pot, and we bought, brought the best and brightest of the world to the United States where they felt free to create new ideas and new businesses. And to the extent that we slow that, that we tell people they shouldn't come here, I think that's a problem for the country. I, I really think that we ought to have as wide open of doors to the best and brightest as we can. Hmm. And you're not going to always know the best and brightest, so you've got to you're going to take a little risk around that, that as well. Now, of course, people are fearful of things. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world today that, that gives people pause. And so I understand that there is a balancing act there. But we should say, OK, when somebody comes and they're able to come into, say, our best universities, because we still have the best universities in the world, why do we send them back home to create critical mass somewhere else? And, you know, we like to think that we do all the innovation, but it's not true anymore because we've trained enough people, we've sent them to other places, they've created critical mass in other parts of the world, and now they're innovating very, very rapidly too.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you, do you think uh, France's enticement for climate scientists to go <laughs> yeah. work there is, is going to work? I mean, you did post-doc in France. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty nice back then, right?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's... Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that works. I mean, I think, I think it is very smart for countries to try and build a critical mass in areas. We found that ourselves when we did our like, off-site offices out of San Diego. When you just made them a job shop, that wasn't really good. You didn't create a cohesion there. But when you said this area is going to be known or this place is going to be known for this particular area, that really worked well. So I think if countries can get reputations as being the place where you have critical mass of people in a certain area, then, yeah, I think it can work. And so they really follow that up with, you know, incentives and the right policies and the right spaces and they can get people to work together. Uh, Yeah, it can work. I think that can work.
0: If you were in your late teens today, ambitious, the world is your oyster, what area of engineering would you be focused on?
1: Uh, So I have a son who's getting ready to go to UC Berkeley, and he's going to go into electrical engineering and computer science. But what we've done there is we've built a sort of a— Is that what you would do? Uh, yeah, I would. I would tell him what I would tell him. What, but what I was going to say is that when he goes there as an electrical engineering, and computer science, I look at that as just a foundational level that he should learn. And then he can specialize into other areas. And so we've actually built an institute there and a building there where they, there are design studios and kids come together from all different areas and they, com, they collaborate on projects. And that's really why I was excited about him going to Berkeley, because he's going to get to work with people out of biology and chemistry. I mean, CRISPR was done at Berkeley, for example. So there's the whole bioengineering thing is really hot there. And of and course, you
0: went to Berkeley all the way through, right? I did. Bachelor's on up through your doctorate.
1: I did. So I'm, I'm a big uh, Cal. Go Bears. But uh, anyway, so yeah, so I'm happy he's going there. Of course, my middle son went to MIT, so my dad won that one. <laughs>
0: right. Your dad went to MIT. <laughs> and, and, and taught there. And you're, you're involved... In MIT, right.
1: also. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm going from here. we uh, there's a advisory council that's uh, coming up. So I'm going there to dinner tomorrow night, and then uh, next on Wednesday we'll have the uh, the council. And it's always an interesting group of people from around the world who come together and just say, Hey, here are the here are the things that that we think you ought to be working on. What do you La- tell them to do? Well, last the time they leaders. we we went around the table last time and saying what's what's your moonshot? And I said, Hey let's try and build a computer that's as power efficient as this because this thing is a really powerful computer and it like runs on bananas you know I mean it runs on food (laughs) it doesn't use a lot of power it's like 25 watts so let's go see whether we can do stuff like that because if we're gonna have this internet of things with sensors all around us sensing things and communicating they gotta process at very low low power and I think something akin to the way the brain does it will be an interesting possibility for doing that kind of stuff.
0: Last thing Intel and Microsoft thought that the PC was going to be the basis for the Internet of Everything, in In essence. It was going to be the basis for the phone, for the cars. I remember Windows for the car at CES back in 2001 or so. Is the smartphone really going to be the basis for the next thing?
1: I think the technologies that are in the smartphone will be the basis for the next thing, whether it is the exact operating system, the form factor, the manufacturers, all those things, whether those companies continue to win out, I think that is, we'll see. How but can what you be we sure do, that
0: it's not the same kind of fa- logical fallacy that the PC makers followed thinking that this was going to be
1: more like a mini PC? Because this thing, it, we didn't stop with this thing. I mean, the, the evolution of the PC stopped at some point, and you just got a clamshell device like that with a keyboard on it, and they just you know, basically didn't do anything. Where has where, where this gone? This has gone into my car now. This has gone into my glasses and my watch and all of these other things that are going on. And so I think that we, in the industry, continue to try and evolve what is a smart thing i mean this is a smart phone but there are other smart things out there and so it's that idea of continuing the smartness is what's what's really important and that i think is right and continuing to allow these things to connect everywhere and better and better i mean we're building this low earth orbiting satellite system which we didn't even talk about which is going to give mobile broadband actually broadband to everywhere in the world and that'll launch in uh Basically, a couple of years by 2020, we'll we'll have that up and running, and we're going to do all sorts of cool stuff with that. I mean, I I imagine that well, a goal of the company is to connect every school in the world, and one of my ideas for that is that we're going to use smartphone technology with VR. And if you're a kid sitting in like a one-room school out in the middle of rural, some rural developing country which generally you don't have a lot of stuff in your school. You have things painted on the walls and a few books that, you know, No, now you're going to be able to get a cheap smartphone and put it up and you're going to be able to go to the Eiffel Tower or the Great Wall of China. You're going to be able to learn math and physics with great, you know, equipment from the best teachers in the world. You know, I think that kind of stuff, will get to change the world again by doing that too.
0: My thanks to Paul Jacobs. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Fortnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack, Fragrance.